Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. We'll be uh, considering in the sermon text the Apostle Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, and it seemed fruitful to compare that with another farewell address from the Old Testament near the end of the ministry of the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 18. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now, deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Amen. Let's turn then to Acts chapter 20. And we're going to read verses 17 to the end of the chapter. 
Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you, every one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Amen. You may be seated. When you enter the library at Westminster uh, Theological Seminary in Philadelphia area, above the door there is engraved in stone the seal of the institution. And in the center of the seal, there is a, uh, a pulpit. And on the pulpit, there is an open Bible. And lying on top of the Bible is a symbolic sword, uh, the sword of the Spirit. Um, 
And above the pulpit and the Bible and the sword, there is engraved in capital Greek letters the phrase Pasa He Bule to Theu, which means the whole counsel of God. It comes from this speech of Paul, verse 27 For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That is the vision for ministry. That seminary was built to inculcate in its students, to foster in the church. Not a partial gospel, not a popular gospel, not our preference for what we wish the Bible said, taking the parts that we like and leaving all the rest. The whole counsel of God. That's the vision for ministry there at Westminster in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church here at Resurrection. Why? Because it was the Apostle Paul's vision for ministry. And in fact, it was the Lord Jesus' vision for ministry in his church, by his spirit, for his glory. The whole counsel of God. Now here is Paul is saying farewell to the leaders of the church in Ephesus for what he believes will be the last time he sees them, the last time they will see his face. Um, we get a unique insight here into what is most important to him. Of all the things that he could say at a crucial moment like this, these people he's so close to, this is what he does say. This is how he uses those crucial moments to leave ringing in their ears the most important things that they need to remember about his ministry among them, and also about their duty now that he will no longer be among them. So as we look closely at what people like to call Paul's farewell address here, I'm going to consider it in three sections. First, the man and the message, verses 17 to 27. Second, the dangers and the duty, verses 28 to 31. And third, the sacrifice of the self. Verses 32 to 38. So the man and the message, the dangers and the duty, and the sacrifice of the self. Uh, the ancient <clears throat> Greek rhetoricians um, used to talk about three very important elements in persuasion. If you have something to say that you think is true and important and you want other people to listen then you need to have what they called ethos, pathos, and logos. Now, logos is your, your reasoning, it's your argumentation, your evidence, your facts. Um, does your message stand to reason? Um, pathos has to do with feeling. Uh, you can make a convincing, a convincing argument, but can you make it compelling? Can you help people to feel the truth of it? the way that you speak. But you can have all of the logos and all of the pathos in the world, and you can still fail to persuade people of the truth if you lack that third piece, which is ethos. Ethos has to do with your character. Are you trustworthy? Are you reliable? Why should people listen to you? There needs to be a match between the message and the person delivering it. Or else, no matter how true 
and even how compelling uh, the message itself is, people are simply going to find it hard to believe. But in verses 18 to 21 here, Paul is reminding the Ephesians, Ephesian elders that when he was living there in Ephesus, his life consistently, day after day after day, matched his teaching. From the very beginning, what was his ministry characterized by? It wasn't characterized by uh, luxury, uh, by pandering, by saying what people wanted to hear in order to gain a following. No, it was characterized by humility, tears, and suffering. His message was an unpopular message, so unpopular that it brought about fierce opposition everywhere that he went, uh, including Ephesus. But just because people didn't like his message or opposed him for it didn't mean that Paul was going to stop preaching it or compromise it in any way. I did not shrink, he says, from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And he did that not only publicly, but also privately in people's houses, in public and from house to house, he says. By the way, that's where we get the name of Resurrection's house-to-house visits, uh, where where the elders try to visit you from time to time usually in your homes. Uh, we got the name from another church, but they got it from Paul, from here. And, um, sometimes people think of the church as a place just where you go, like maybe, where you, maybe you go to the theater or you go to the grocery store, uh, but, but they don't expect the church to come to them. Um, it's out there. It's a place that I can go and dip my feet in the water, but then the water stays there at a safe distance, where I want it to be. But Paul is painting a much more personally involved picture of church life and ministry. The public part is important. It's what we're doing now. Um, Public worship, corporate worship, and that's that's the foundation that everything else builds on, that public proclamation um, and public worship of God. But Paul says, I did not shrink from teaching you in public and from house to house. And And then he goes on, what was the content then of what Paul taught in those various contexts? Well, verse 21, the content was, it all boils down to faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. It says repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is so important. We've talked about this many times before, how central repentance is in the gospel proclamation in the book of Acts especially. The gospel message got to get this straight in our minds. The gospel message is not a message of easy believism, as people like to call it. Um, Just believe in Jesus, but there's no uh, need for any kind of change in any aspect of your life, your habits, how you go about your day-to-day. No. The consistent message of the gospel is that faith and repentance have to go together. And remember, we talked about this, how turning towards Christ means you're turning away from something else. You are turning away from sin. You're turning your back on everything that is the opposite of grace through faith in Christ. Um, easy believism, to use that phrase again. Easy believism, I can't even say it. Easy believism says, just uh, take all of the benefits of Christianity, um, but don't worry about doing anything any differently in your daily choices. But the gospel says something very different from that. The gospel says having Jesus as your Savior means 
having Jesus as your king. And you cannot separate those two things and try to have Jesus as one, but not the other. The gospel says having Jesus as your savior means reorienting your whole life so that you are living not for yourself anymore. You are living for him. His law is the standard for your life. Paul's message, then, is really just the same as Jesus' message. Sometimes people will try to make a distinction between, well, here's the, here's the message of Jesus, and then Apostle Paul came along and he was proclaiming something else. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 1.15. When Jesus came preaching in Galilee, what was his message? It was, repent and believe in the gospel. It's the same message. There's this continuity between the message of Christ and the message of the apostles, including the Apostle Paul, as Paul says the same thing here. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message of Paul. It's the message of the gospel. Now, last week I mentioned briefly that uh, this chapter represents a major transition in the book of Acts, which parallels closely a major transition in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, we always have to read Luke and Acts kind of side by side because they're sort of two volumes of one uh, whole work of um, the writer, the inspired writer, Luke. Um, and so remember that in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, Luke says that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, um, it's referring to the whole group of events with his, his passion and resurrection and so on. Um, he set his face, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so much of the Gospel of Luke then is set with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, on this long journey to Jerusalem to finish his mission at the cross. Many of the things that he does and says happen along that journey. Well, here in Acts, Paul is, in a sense, following that pattern of the life and ministry of Jesus. He is hastening, remember, to be at Jerusalem, verse 16. And, and like Jesus, he knows very clearly that when he gets there, very intense suffering is waiting for him. It's very striking and important that we have in the back of our minds Jesus' journey to Jerusalem as we consider the rest of Paul's journey to Jerusalem. And now, behold, he says, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But, and here you can, um, you can hear here very clearly, I think, a uh, close resemblance with what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.7. Um, in 2 Timothy 4.7, he says, it's that famous verse, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Right? Now, that's what Paul is writing to Timothy at the very end of his life, right before he's executed. Um, but notice that Paul didn't start thinking about his life in those terms at the very end when he was on death's door. That's not the time when he began to think of his life as a race that he needed to finish faithfully. Paul was able to think that way about his life at the end because that's the way he was thinking about his life here in Acts 20 already. This was his life goal all along, to finish the race 
that Jesus had given him to run faithfully and completely. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This was Paul's all-consuming focus of his life. Jesus had given him, him a job to do, had given him a message to proclaim, a race to run, and that is where Paul was going to keep his attention focused. I wonder, you think about your life, where you're expending your energy, what direction you're running, what gets your heart rate up. What is your if only? What is your if only? Anything else in my life is negotiable. Anything else in my life I can do without, I would drop it in a heartbeat, if only you fill in the blank. See, how you answer that question right now predicts what you'll be saying at the end of your life when you look back on it all. Makes you wonder if you'll be looking back with that Satisfaction Paul showed in Second Timothy or with a sense of regret. If you want to be able to say at the end of your life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Then you should think now, what should my if only be in the present? Now, all this Paul is saying, um, not just to reminisce here. He's not just engaging in some kind of nostalgia to look back with warm, fuzzy feelings about his, his time in Ephesus. He's saying all of this to prepare the Ephesian church, uh, the Ephesian church leadership in particular, for a major change that is going to alter greatly the way they need to think about ministering to this church. And now behold, Paul says... I know that none of you among whom, have I have, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Up until now, they've had Paul's personal leadership. Um, not all the time, but at least they've had the expectation that from time to time he would be there in Ephesus, checking, honing, guiding their ministry. But now they are entering a future where Paul is not going to be there anymore. And not only that, but they're going to have to navigate without him all kinds of dangers and difficulties and deceptions uh, that are constantly going to be beleaguering them and the people that they're leading. So we're calling this second section the dangers and the duty. Pay careful attention, he says, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We've seen in our study of Revelation in adult Sunday school the two symbols of the beast and the prostitute. 
and how they are attacking and alluring the church from the outside, yes, but how there are also the false teachers inside the church who are aligned with the beast and the prostitute, even though that's not the way they present themselves. And now look at what Paul says. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, inside the church itself, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, Paul says. He reminds them of his own sense of urgency that he showed in his own ministry. For three years, he says, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He's saying, I haven't just been teaching you um, this academic subject that I think is interesting and useful that will help you have a better life. These are matters of life and death that he's talking about. He wants them not to lose that urgency in their own ministry. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus himself told his disciples way back then, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. The church is to expect that we are under spiritual attack every day. Those attacks are coming at you from all directions. They're coming at you through media. They're coming at you through uh, advertising, marketing, through the emotional appeals of everyone from politicians to celebrities. They are coming at you privately through your friends and your family. And they are even coming at you through Christian teachers. In that term broadly, there is this unrelenting drag on your soul from all directions. It's the atmosphere. It's like the atmosphere is what brings the drag on an airplane. It's just all around us all the time trying to absorb you into the mindset that this world is all there is. Or at least it's all there is that's worth paying attention to and living for, caring about, and thinking about. The, the idea that, that real freedom and happiness comes just from, just from being true to your desires, to whatever you want, doing what makes you feel good, just, just blending in with the mainstream, just going with the flow. Paul is reminding these elders, the church has got to stay on a wartime footing. They are to be wartime leaders, not peacetime leaders when it comes to these matters of spiritual warfare, not lulled into a false sense of security. I want to zoom out a little bit here and think about the big picture. Um, Daryl Bach points out that Paul in this speech is doing something very similar to what he does in the pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus. He is preparing these leaders for life after the apostles. Life after the apostles. You're entering a future, Paul is saying, where I'm not going to be around anymore. Um, And it's instructive then to notice a couple of things that Paul does not say. Think of, again, we can think about all the things he could have said at this moment that would have guided these church leaders into the future. First of all, as Ben Witherington points out, he does not set up any kind of um, what's called apostolic succession. Roman Catholicism teaches apostolic succession, that the apostles passed on their apostolic authority to bishops, especially the bishop of Rome, the Pope. Um, That's not what you actually see happening in the book of Acts. 
In Acts, it's, it's clear that the apostle's office was unrepeatable. Unrepeatable. Uh, that means they were unique witnesses to Christ, whose task was to lay a once-for-all foundation that the church would then build on for the rest of its life until the second coming. So Paul does not say here, um, now that I'm gone, now this guy is the new apostle for the church. No. He calls them all overseers. All these people who are elders of the church, he refers to them all as overseers, episkopos, bishop. That's the word for bishop. But all of the elders are also overseers, bishops. It's um, a very different model from that idea of Paul passing on his apostolic authority to someone else to carry the apostolic torch. Um, it's, the, it's the apostolic message there to be carrying, not the apostolic office. Here's what he also doesn't say. This is the other side. He also doesn't say, okay, now that I'm going to be gone, I'm not going to be giving you new inspired revelation anymore. What you need to do, what you need to lead the people of Ephesus in doing is to listen for the still small voice of the Holy Spirit to tell you what to do, which direction the church should go. And this is the error of charismatic and, and Pentecostal teaching. So if Roman Catholicism tries to give a, a, a few people apostolic authority, charismatic theology gives every Christian, at least potentially, a kind of apostolic authority. The expectation that you can get direct personal revelation from God to share with the church. And that's what should guide the church into the future. Paul teaches neither of those things. What does he teach this church to do? What is Paul's great burden for the Ephesian elders to embrace and to emphasize as they lead the church into the future? He calls them back to the word. To the word. And it starts in verse 27, where he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then you see it again in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. It is the word of God's grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It is the word of God that is going to be the basis for their leadership in the church. Not some personal apostolic authority that's been bestowed upon them. Not some private revelation that they're going to be receiving from the Holy Spirit. But it is the word of God on which they are to stand. The church's leaders are to minister that word. They are to convey to the church that word of God. And the whole word and nothing but the word. Just as Paul made the centerpiece of his ministry declaring the whole counsel of God. That has got to be the centerpiece of the church's ministry for every future generation. Okay, now, remember what I said at the beginning about logos, pathos, and ethos. We've just been talking about logos, right? We've been talking about the word. We've been talking about the message, the whole counsel of God. Um, we've also seen a fair bit of, of pathos, we could say, in Paul's exhortation here, that sense of urgency, his tears, and so on. But now, um, at the end, Paul comes back to ethos. It's where he started and it's where he ends. You've seen how I lived my life among you, he says. These hands, my hands, ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. He tried not to be a burden on others or make other people in Ephesus serve him. 
Well, now he turns around on these elders and he says, there needs to be a match also between you and the, uh, a match for you between your message and your ministry. I have shown you, he says, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's very important the way he concludes there because this kind of self-giving, self-effacing, self-sacrificing ministry that Paul's talking about starts, doesn't it, with the ministry of the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus. The good shepherd, John 10, who does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. You see, the, the gospel, we have to understand, is both the message and the model, both for Christian ministry and for the Christian life. Think about what Jesus did in his ministry. He lived a life of sorrow and suffering, of rejection and opposition and humiliation, culminating in a violent death on the cross. He who was rich for our sakes became poor. Why? So that we, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the ministry of Jesus. Our sins forgiven because he took our punishment upon him on the cross. Our guilt taken away. Our shame washed clean. But for those things to happen, Christ had to lay down his own life. And that, not just at the end, not just on the cross, but every day of his life. Walking on that path toward the cross. That path of humiliation and service and suffering. That's the ministry of Jesus. And that self-giving, sacrificial love of Jesus for sinners. That is the paradigm, Paul says, for all Christian ministry. And I think that we could say by extension, for all Christian living, really. See, our job, our job as forgiven sinners saved by grace, Paul says, is to work hard to help the weak. Working hard to help the weak. And why? Well, because Jesus helped us in our weakness. Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We don't like to think of ourselves as weak, of course. We'd rather think of ourselves as the strong ones, the competent ones. But the gospel teaches us, of course, that we are all weak, needy people who are called then to help other weak and needy people who are bruised and broken by the fall like we are. And we're to help them by conveying to them not our own strength, not our own ideas, not our own wisdom, not our own resources, but the love and the grace and the mercy and truth of our very strong shepherd savior, Jesus. With that in mind, I'd like to invite you then to think about this question as we close. Where in my life am I carrying out this exhortation to help the weak? That's what Jesus has done for me. Now he's teaching me to expect there are going to be people with different kinds of weaknesses in my life. There's all kinds of weakness, right? It can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be financial, mental, spiritual weakness, all kinds of weakness. There are going to be people that I can help, not out of my own resources, but out of the resources that God supplies in his word, by his spirit. I need to ask myself, am I living my life basically for myself, seeking my own pleasure, my own leisure, my own convenience, just to put up 
guardrails around my little kingdom of myself, protect myself against the weakness of others, or am I intentionally laying down my life to help the weak? And when I see other people's weaknesses, what is my instinctive reaction? Think about this. Is it anger? Why can't they just get their act together? Is it self-righteousness? Thank God that I'm not like that, like the Pharisee. Is it apathy? Not my problem. Or is it irritation? You know, come on, I, I, just, I just don't want to deal with this right now. I just want this to go away. Imagine if Jesus had treated you in any of those ways. Where would you be? Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's not just something that he said. It is something that he lived out all the way to the death. And so if we're going to be a church that is about the whole counsel of God, I could stand here preaching to you rightly about the importance of preaching all of the doctrines of the scriptures, all of the doctrines of grace, all of the, the whole message and plan of God from Genesis to Revelation. All of those things are crucial to the church's life and ministry and teaching. And that is very much what this church is about in so many ways, but I want to encourage you, maybe something you would not expect. If we're going to be a church that's about the whole counsel of God, kind of remember that means being a church where we are giving ourselves self-sacrificially to help the weak. It's every bit as much a part of the message. So think on that. That's where we'll close for today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus. Lord, We are those little ones who to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. We thank you for the way he has helped us in our weakness, that when we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts to have that desire and energy and self-sacrificing selflessness to give ourselves, work hard to help the weak wherever you are calling us to do that. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.